What's up, OBR Film Breakdown listeners? Before we get to today's show, just a reminder about the $100 in free bets over at the number one sportsbook, FanDuel Sportsbook. Use the promo code OBR today to claim that $100 in free bets. Again, that's promo code OBR at FanDuel, the official sportsbook partner of the NFL. You must be 21 or older, President Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio on 1-1-2023. Unique user identification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER. Now, the latest on the OBR Film Breakdown podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome in to the OBR Film Breakdown for your Saturday episode presented by FanDuel. A reminder to take advantage of that $100 free bet to offer by going in using the promo code OBR. Take advantage. You know it's the weekend, so you know we have behind enemy lines. And uh, in, in, the, in the course of a pretty get, a big game here for both sides, Tampa Bay coming up to Cleveland uh, at 5-5, five and five, looking to really take hold of the division. The Browns needing to get a win desperately before Deshaun Watson comes back to keep whatever slim, and I mean very slim, playoff hopes alive uh, in this one. So they get Tampa Bay coming off a bye, but they are coming up to Cleveland. They got to travel, do all that stuff, and the weather's going to be a little colder than they're accustomed to. Not that the quarterback's not accustomed to it, but some others on the roster. So we are going to dive into this show. If you missed the last few days, we had Quincy Carrier on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day episode, and was really, really good stuff all around about where the defense stands and the ineptitude and what the future looks like, and all of our thought process around that. And then yesterday, talking with John Colosimo as we do, going around the AFC North, looking at the landscape of what the weekend holds for the division and the outlook, so on and so forth. So check out those two episodes. I'm really excited about today. Got a great recommendation hooked up here with Paul Atwell to go through this episode. Paul's a Bucks film analyst over at Pewter Report. We're very excited to have Paul's expertise on Tampa Bay here. So, Paul, how are you, man? Thanks for joining. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm doing well. Excited for the game. Uh, it's uh, it's it should be a, a quote unquote an easier one for the Buccaneers by record, but they've had a few of those already, and they have a tendency to drop those. So I think I think it's pretty close for both teams. Yeah, well, listen, it's it, Cleveland is is when everyone sees Cleveland right now, it is an opportunity to get your run game back on track. You know, it happened for Miami, happened for Buffalo. I'm sure Tampa. I don't know if uh, if. Leonard Fournette's going to be able to go. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But no matter what, I'm sure Tampa and, and, and some of the stuff you guys have tried to do this year. I follow from afar a friend of mine from college, big Buccaneers fan. So we have some conversations here and there trying to get that run game on track. I'm sure this is a game they're looking at after they put up 160 on Seattle in the run uh, run phase over there. I think that was that in Germany. So, yeah, I think they're they're eager to get going. Give us some. Um, Give us a state of the franchise at this point. Like, where are the – It's so many weird things have happened with Tom and – I, walk us through just where you're at at five and five and how the feeling is around everything. Do they feel like they've turned a corner a little bit here? I think so. I mean, finally stringing together two wins in a row. So on paper, it should seem that way. But I think there's still a ton of the same underlying issues. But overall, it seemed like they found some things in the run game. They, uh, I don't know if you want to hop right into the, some of the scheme stuff right now that they're doing differently. But yeah, they definitely found they found a few wrinkles. They 
they got back to more of their shotgun runs as opposed to heavy personnel under center all the time and did a better job of creating some of those light boxes and creating favorable looks, something that they did a lot last year. On the defensive side, this unit, you, there's not too much to complain about. They they lost Shaq Barrett to injury, and he's going to be done for the rest of the year. But if you look at any of the any sort of metric, really, they shake out pretty favorably, averaging only 18 points against per game. They're top 10 by EPA, top 5 in terms of yards given up per game. But it's just been the offensive side that's that's been struggling to hold up their end of the bargain. Yeah, we'll dive into that offense. Let's do that now. They're not running it well among the lower-ranked teams in the league in rushing. But like I said, last week they put up 161, their best effort of the year. Uh, I know they started the year with Dallas and ran it relatively effectively. But it's been, I mean, there's been some ugly numbers in there over the course of those weeks in between Dallas and Week 10 when they played Seattle. So, like, dig into that a little bit. What What is causing, I know they're typically an interior duo-based team, but have they changed that? What are they trying to do with Byron Lepp, which is the OC, to figure out how to get some cheap yards on the ground? Yeah, you nailed it. Definitely an uh, interior uh, run scheme. Lots of duo, lots of inside zone. That's been true for the last few years, and that's still true now. But at the beginning of the season, they had a ton of issues with their offensive line, especially at left guard. Luke Gedeke, rookie guard, was just playing. He, he, he was getting beat on an unbelievable number of, uh, of reps on, in both the pass game and the run game. Uh, at center, Robert Hainsey stepping in for Ryan Jensen, who was hurt before the season began. Hainsey overall has been pretty playing pretty well as, as far as a backup goes, but obviously Ryan Jensen, you're talking about one of the best centers in the league, so there's a dip there. And and overall, I think another big part of it is that up until last week, Leonard Fournette has been getting the vast majority of snaps at running back, and he's struggled in a lot of ways in terms of speed, acceleration, vision, and you see a pretty big difference when you when you see Rashad White in there for, for the snaps that he was getting. A lot more explosive, a lot more decisive, and he he came out and had a pretty big game last or two weeks ago against uh, against Seattle, and Fournette is actually on the injury report. And Todd Bowles, I think, said it was either today or yesterday that that Fournette is still pretty sore from a hip pointer. So I would be surprised to see him get many, if any, snaps on Sunday, assuming he's even active at all, which bodes well, honestly, for the Buccaneers. Rashad White, rookie running back, he's been. He's been really good. We're not talking about an elite running back, but we're talking about someone who is doing things at at least an average to slightly above average, uh, at a, 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 sorry, average or slightly above average level in both the running game and in the pass game. He's been surprisingly good in pass protection as well. And and the, the other change that uh, made a huge difference going back to the Ravens game is that at left guard, it's been Nick Leverett. And he has... Just a massive, massive difference. Just playing at a roughly even, let's just say, average level has been such a big upgrade to this offense in both the pass and the run game. So that piggybacks, you know, into how Tom's playing. The Browns' defense isn't, they're not creating takeaways. It was a point of emphasis last week uh, that, the, that the guys were talking about how they're not creating them because they don't maybe harp on them enough during practice or make it a focal point. I think the Buccaneers are throwing or turning it over as one of the lowest turnover teams in terms of giving the football away in the league. But Tom's been a little rusty. Hasn't been the usual elite play, I think you would say, but he's still playing at a high level. They still have Julio and Mike and and Godwin. And 
uh, Cameron Brates, your tight end. Like, what what are they? How are they using those guys? What's the the general pass game look like as they head into this one after the bye? Yeah, and I think that's a pretty fair assessment overall. It's still rooted very much in the same philosophies that it has been under Bruce Arians over the last few years. So we're talking about a lot of three-by-one formations where you're sticking Mike Evans on one side, and then you have Godwin on the trip side, often working in the short to intermediate areas over the middle. And the basic premise or the basic proposition that this offense is trying to propose to the defense is, hey, which where are you going to allocate your source resources? Are you going to play two over one to Mike Evans' side and weaken up the coverage over the middle where Godwin can then work with more space? Or are you going to give uh, are you going to put more of your defenders to the trip side and leave Evans one-on-one? And and that's always kind of been the basic problem. But what's happened this year is it's been that those same interior line issues, especially at left guard early in the season, they also had a handful of wide receiver injuries. But what you saw happen was overall Brady was playing fine. It's not He, he certainly was outplaying his basic box score stats, but the problem was just immediate interior pressure on play after play after play. And what you saw eventually happen after after several weeks is his consistency in the pocket just dropped. He would he would be prematurely panicking with his with his footwork at times, which is really uncharacteristic of him. And it would cause him to be less accurate on throws obviously on ones where there was pressure, but at times on ones where there wasn't even pressure actually there and then you kind of saw a turning point in some ways in the Ravens game in in some ways the offensive line they played their best game because that's when or up to that point because that's when Nick Leverett came in but Brady didn't look like he had recalibrated yet and he was still escaping out of clean pockets still had that sort of those that overly active footwork and and it was just it kind of made things it made it all that much more jarring but then in the two games after that against the Rams and especially against the Seahawks, you've seen him very quickly recalibrate. If you watch that Seahawks game, he looks as calm as, he's ever, as he ever does. Very steady feet. Even in a few instances where there were pressure, though the offensive line played fantastic that game, even in, the, in those instances where, where there was pressure, he was very solid with his base, was able to go through his reads and fit it into tight windows. And if that given that he was able to recalibrate that quickly and and if this offensive line does play the way that they played in Seattle they're going to be just fine and i think if i'm remembering off the top of my head they only scored 21 points that game recall one of their drives stalled deep in Seattle territory with that Leonard Fournette interception but overall they looked they looked really good talk about the o line a little bit i think there was there was what the retirement of Ali Marpet i think i think um is it Ryan Jensen's hurt and then and then they lost Who'd they lose to to Cincinnati as well? It's just it's I think it's been a less even performance up front. I could be wrong here. Fill us in. There's some names in here I don't totally recognize. Obviously, still Tristan Wirfs anchoring the right side. So fill us in. What's going on up front with with this uh, O line? Yeah, I guess I can just kind of quickly go through each of the starters on the left uh, at left tackle. You have Donovan Smith. He's been kind of an up and down career. I I think he's started playing quite a bit better in 2020 once Brady got there. And obviously a big part of that is just Brady helps his offensive line a lot with his extremely fast processing speed and doesn't put his offensive line in a tough situation. This year, though, 
he's actually taken a bit of a dip in some games where he's probably playing as poorly as he has uh, since Brady's been there. I certainly wouldn't say he's been playing like at a poorly overall, but just it's been a bit of a, a dip relative to his play in the last few years. Left guard, like like you mentioned, Ali Marpet, who was probably he he was the second best player on the offensive line behind Tristan Wirfs. Absolute stud at left guard. He retired. And then you had Luke Gedicke starting the season, who's the rookie that I already mentioned, and it was about as rough as it can possibly be. Since since the Ravens game, which was now, I guess, four weeks ago, uh, it's been Nick Leverett, who's been playing much better than Gedicke did, and that's really helped turn this offensive line around. At center, Ryan Jensen went down before the season started. He could be back at some point. It's been kind of weird how little they've announced with regards to his recovery. I don't believe he had any sort of surgery, so there is a chance that he can be back either during the playoffs or maybe even a bit before. But right now, it's Robert Hainsey, who's been playing pretty well for a backup. He's certainly not a uh, a consistent issue, though he definitely loses a few reps every game, but it's certainly something that they can manage. Right guard, they lost Alex Kappa and free agency to the Bengals. And to replace him, they traded for uh, Shaq Mason from the Patriots. And Shaq Mason... On paper, it's definitely an upgrade, and I mean, Alex Kappa was was solid, but that offensive line was so good that Alex Kappa in 2021, you would point to as the weakest player on the line, even though he wasn't a bad player by any means. Shaq Mason's, you can say roughly at the same level, maybe a little bit better, and at right tackle, just maybe one of the absolute best players in the game, Christian Wirfs. Not really much to say. He's so good that I honestly completely forget about him when I'm watching tape at times, and I have to make a <laughs> mental note to actually look at what he's doing because he's just dominating guys. I, I I don't even remember what the statistic was. I think it was something insane. Like he's given up, I want to say three pressures all year. Might have been three, might have been five, and he hasn't given up a pressure in in some ridiculous amount of weeks. I I wish I remembered the actual numbers off the top of my head, but John Ledger pointed this out to me uh, a week or so ago and it was just absolutely insane stuff so he's playing out of his mind and and yeah I think that pretty much sums it up for that starting five yeah I'm trying to pull it up right now so it looks like Werfs on the year has allowed three <laughs> he's had uh 473 pass uh, pass blocking reps this year and he's given up three pressures ridiculous number that is um that is insane and obviously uh, a guy that has a close connection with Cleveland because the Browns took Jedrick Wills with the pick right in front of him instead of Tristan. And Jedrick this year has given up in 390, 26 pressures. So oh, you, know, no. you can you can tell why Browns fans talk about Tristan Wirfs a significant amount. Okay, so let's close the offense. How, how do you how do you think they're going? I mean, I know you haven't watched Cleveland, but you know, 4-3 base struggling to run, defend the run, period. It was funny. Last week the Bills kind of came out and wanted to throw it because that's who they are with Josh Allen. They don't even really lean into the run game much. They kind of lean into it when they feel like they need to close it. It's funny. They the late first quarter, early second quarter, after the Browns missed out on some opportunities to score, and it was like 10-3. You could see this epiphany of of, of their offensive. Like, what the hell are we doing? We should be running the rock at these guys because they can't handle it and they end up running for 170 on the day. So do you think there will be a right-from-the-very-set-go push to run the football here, or do you think they'll try to let Tom uh, sort of manipulate getting an early lead? Like, what's your angle on how you think that that they would attack a team that's – I mean, Cleveland's historically bad run deep. I mean, I'm talking 
I've talked to a guest this week. I mean, they're pushing the threshold of the worst run defense this, this century. Like they're, they're that bad right now. I know it's surprising given the volume of passing attempts from the Buccaneers, but they actually in these, during this regime, they look for basically any excuse they can to run the ball, especially on first down. So I absolutely expect that to be the approach. And they do it in, and when I say any reason, that could mean you're presenting light boxes on first down, like Seattle did last week. Anytime a team plays two high structures on first down, they will run the crap out of the ball and just have an insane run pass frequency on first down. And if you actually look at their overall stats from against Seattle, they didn't run the ball particularly well. Uh, they are, they had a, a, a good overall yard number, but in terms of yards per attempt, their efficiency, those type of things weren't very good. And they... And one of the things that's hidden all, all this is the fact that they went 10 of 15 on third down. They did obviously do a good job of creating third and somewhat short situations, but no matter what distance you have to go on third down, that is a completely unsustainable conversion rate. So I think that as poor as Cleveland's run defense is, I do think that bodes well for them because I think the Bucks will continue to run the ball a lot on first down. They'll do it inefficiently, most likely, because that's been the case all year. And that's going to put them in a lot of second and longs, third and longs type situations. Now, the question is, can the Bucks' pass offense bail them out in those situations? They did it against Seattle, and you still have Tom Brady, Mike Evans, Chris Godwin. And, and I think that's really what's going to determine this game. That being said, if they get anything going on the ground, like they did against Seattle, where we're just talking about not very good, but just an okay level of production, that's when Leftwich really starts leaning into his play-action game. Even though there's a lot of evidence out there that play-action efficiency is not necessarily correlated with how effectively or how even often you're running the ball, in a, as long as there's some credible threat of the run, play-action works. Leftwich clearly doesn't see it that way. And if you look at his track record in the last few years, his play-action usage is so highly tethered to the success of the run game in, short sample, in small sample sizes. So for instance, against Seattle, they ran the ball reasonably well, at least compared to rest of the season, and they had by far their highest percentage of play-action usage. And this box team, they're at the bottom of the league when it comes to play-action usage, and they have been for the last few years, but they are one of the absolute best at it. Brady is deadly off of play-action. This offensive line, it gives them a little uh, a beat longer, and, that, and with their play-action game, that's when they really try to take their shots down the field. They don't do much in terms of using play action for horizontal stretches and creating underneath a quick, easy passes. It's about let's get those 18 yard chunks down the field on those big in breakers uh, on even they'll even throw outside the numbers uh, off of play action. Just again, trying to gash teams. So yeah, as if they can get anything going on the ground, they're going to really start leaning into that play action. And that's when it gets scary for the uh, opposing defense. Well, it's scary for the Browns, too. I mean, if they're committing a bunch of resources to figuring out how to stop the run as they are really trying to solve that riddle, you start putting guys in space. And I think the Browns have a talented enough secondary, but you start putting guys on islands against talent like Mike Evans and Godwin and some of the others, like you're just your odds of getting beat are pretty high. So this seems like the right formula of a defense for really any NFL team, but particularly a Tom Brady led offense who's starting to turn the corner with running the football perhaps a little better than they were early in the year. So I'm looking at it like, you know, Atlanta, they put up 21. Pittsburgh, they lose 20 to 18. They only put up three in Carolina. When when they have struggled, what what is the recipe teams are doing to, to give them fits? Like if Cleveland were to stop them or stymie, uh, find a way to keep them under 20 points, what does that formula look like? 
Yeah, I think, you know, I, this is really counterintuitive for a team like Cleveland who has struggled against the run. But to me, I always want to give them light, give the Buccaneers light boxes on first down for the reasons that I mentioned before. They can't help themselves. They will run it and they'll put themselves in difficult second and third uh, third down situations. And as far as schematically, I don't know if you can really point to, again, in those passing situations, if there's any clear and obvious answer against this Bucks team. Their biggest issues have come from kind of shooting themselves in the foot. It's been execution issues at times, it just in terms of receivers not being on the same page with what routes they're running with Brady, which is really weird for an experienced veteran group like this. Uh, but it's it's not necessarily like teams have found a schematic answer per se. I would say if teams that do have the, the, the players to do it, if they can play man, that tends to bode a little bit better than playing zone where Brady can just pick you apart and find, find the soft spots. But uh, I actually just lost my train of thought. I had, <laughs> I had one more thing to point out there for how, how they've been losing on offense. But yeah, I think most of it has been on their own. Oh, right. I just, so the other thing that's been happening is they're, they're a team with very clear tendencies. And I'm talking about even clear tendencies in terms of this is the situation. This is the concept that they like to lean on very heavily in this down and distance out of these formations. And you've actually, if, when you put on the tape for the Bucks, and if you're really watching them week for week to week, you can notice like, oh, the defense clearly was keyed in on what they're doing here. For instance, there was a play against Carolina where the Bucks, one of their favorite plays is nine eight nine, where the slot mm-hmm. receiver is running that middle read route. So against single high, he's going to run a crosser cross across uh, the uh, the free safety space. Against two high, he's going to split the two safeties and run a post route. And Carolina knowing that the the Bucks love going to that play on third and long situations, they're playing single high, and they know that Godwin, who is that slot player on that middle read route, is going to run a crosser. But they actually just line up their free safety. Instead of him playing in towards the middle of the field, he's actually just sitting on the opposite hash pre-snap uh, that he knows Godwin's going to run to. And it they completely shut down the play. That's not the only example of that sort of thing happening, but it's something that you've seen way too often for a professional team that needs to be scouting itself more. So as long as uh, if if sorry if Cleveland does a good job of scouting the Buccaneers, really looking into tendencies, that's one way they can really get a beat against this against this unit. Yeah, maybe not the best time to play them coming out of the bye then, where they can adjust and self scout and do some of those things to break tendencies that uh, they put in place. So that chess match will certainly be fascinating. We're going to take our only break of this episode. Real quick, and then we'll come back and finish up with what the defense and special teams looks like. We'll be right back. Hey, guys, telling you again about the fantastic offer coming up from FanDuel, America's number one sports book, which is coming to the Buckeye State at the turn of the year. They're already available. If you go in, sign up, you get $100 in free bets with an early sign-up bonus. Now, again, reminder, you cannot get this offer if you wait around and do it after the turn of the new year when, when it's a go-live date for sports betting in Ohio. You have to do it early. You get an early sign-up bonus by using the promo code OBR. Very simple. Just OBR. Get that sign-up bonus, right? Get $100 in free bets. Just have to download the FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app, safe, secure, super easy to use. I already do it for some of the shows that I do on Sundays just to look at lines and give advice. Download that app. Ohio, it's your chance to get in on the action. Join today. Again, promo code OBR. Make every moment more with FanDuel, the official sportsbook partner of the NFL. Again, the disclaimer, 21 and older. You've got to be present in Ohio. 
bonuses issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio, 1-1 of 2023. Unique user identity verification is required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Safe to say at this point, um, that, that Paul, that we're looking at a situation where it's not a good time for Cleveland to have center issues. They uh, have had a really successful run this year with Ethan Posich, who came from Seattle, uh, took over after Nick Harris, a young center that they they had high hopes for, was uh, had a torn ACL in the first preseason game. And Posich has been an extremely good player, one of the higher graded centers across the league, perfect fit for the moving stuff they do up front all the time. And he left after three plays last week. They brought in a guy named Yodi Froholt, um, but but they've been beat up. They're one of their next interior guys, who I think would have been the center. Michael Dunn is on IR right now. He's beat up. Needless to say, Froholt really struggled against the Bills, and there is a very, very dynamic challenge coming in Vita Vea. Talk to me about, you know, obviously Vita, what they present along the interior uh, and then, and then, sort of the rest of the D line because there's some names like Logan Hall. I was a huge fan of Joe Tryon was a huge fan of him as well. Carl Nassib's there in a rotational role. Uh, obviously, you know, spent his early career with Cleveland. There's a lot of connection here. So three, four base, and how are they looking up front? Yeah, it's actually that's probably one of the most interesting storylines in this season that I don't think has been talked about much, and that's been the change in their defensive line approach. So, like you mentioned. This is a Todd Bowles defense, and when you think of Todd Bowles defenses, you're thinking of those odd fronts. And in previous years, so often it's been, they're going to have five guys on the line, especially on first down, with a safety walk down to the box, with an all-out emphasis on stopping the run. And what teams did to counter that is, okay, while you're sending five, you have five big bodies on the defensive line, you're clearly putting all your resources to stopping the run. We're just going to stop running the ball against you on first down. And more than anyone else, the Bucs were getting thrown against on neutral first downs at an insane clip, especially on those quick underneath passes to the flats. And that's been a huge change this year. In situations before where they're staying in those base packages, even against 11 personnel, they've gone away from that in a big way this year. Now, if you're an 11, they're going to play nickel, and they're going to be a little bit more willing to concede some, uh, uh, some yards on the ground, at least in theory. And because they're playing uh, with lighter personnel packages. And the other really big change is 
they're switching way more to even fronts, which is a huge change for Bulls. So, hmm. and, and Vita Vea has been a big part of that. So he's gone from that zero technique or one technique, head up kind of nose tackle into playing way more of that three technique on the strong side in, that, in those over fronts. It just came out, I think, today, which was a surprise to me. Vita Vea is on the injury report, and he's actually questionable. It's a very good chance that he doesn't play with some sort of foot injury. I don't know exactly when this happened, if it was oh, in wow. practice or something like that, but that would obviously be a huge blow. Uh, Reminder, do... we are recording this on Wednesday, so uh, this could change between now and the time you listen to this, but that is an interesting wrinkle, Paul. Yeah, yeah. So, sorry, I should have mentioned that. It's, uh, it's okay. It, so they have... They do still have Rakeem Nunez Rochez, who's been solid, but certainly not the absolute run stuffer that Vita Vea is. Will Golston's had a solid year. Akeem Nix was a free agent pickup, but he he's missed a lot of time this year due to injury. And I certainly wouldn't say that he's been a huge game changer for them on defense, though he's been fine when he's been in there. Joe Tryon Shoyenka, to me, is one of the most interesting pieces, though, on this defense. So now he's playing a ton as, as just a defensive end in those sort of even front looks. But one of the really cool things that they're doing with him is they'll drop him into coverage quite a bit. And it's it's had a few downstream effects. So another one of the schematic changes that uh, that Bowles, excuse me, has made this year is he's completely toned down his, sh- uh, his blitz uh, rates. In, in the last few years, it's been completely out of control. We're talking about in the low 40% uh, uh, in the 40% for blitz rates, which is just way above league averages. And this year it's down to the high twenties. If I recall, uh, if I recall correctly, but what he's still doing is getting creative and using sim pressures. And one thing that he likes to do a lot is drop JTS into coverage and then bring somebody from the second level. So for example, Devin white and Devin white, despite sort of the, I think, I think the reputation outside of Tampa Bay for Devin White is a lot more favorable than it is if you're watching them week in and week out. He's got a lot of weaknesses in his games, in his game, but one thing that he's absolutely uh, stellar at is if there's any sort of schemed up hole as a pass rusher, he's so fast that he just absolutely explodes. So now Bowles is getting really creative where he's able to send Devin White as a pass rusher more often without having to weaken his coverage by actually sending five pass rushers. That's fascinating. I think I, it's it's funny you say that because again I have a group chat with that Tampa Bay friend of mine, and they, he's posted some stuff that like Warren Sapp has put on tape from him, and like I'm like, man, people inside Tampa do not like Devin White, yet people outside of it. It's so funny you say that because I actually said something similar to him. I was like, man, it seems like you guys hate Devin White. Um, <laughs> while the national reputation is not as crazy, Levante David, I would imagine, still playing pretty good football as a. He's such a good veteran, man. Uh, is he still uh, up to par? Oh, yeah. Levante David is the guy that I wish Levante David got talked about as much as Devin White because uh, Devin White is like a point-and-shoot player. He's very good at certain things and really, really poor at a lot of things, and he's not like that all-around linebacker. But Levante David, he is he's a tick slower than he was in his prime. There's no doubt about that. But the, he's legitimately one of the smartest players I've ever watched on tape. The way he relates to routes, the way he's just always in the right spot at the right time, he plays like he's clairvoyant. It's honestly unbelievable. And, he, and he's able to overcome that loss of speed by just his absolutely incredible play recognition, just that ability to get in the right spot 
it, he it's, it's 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 seriously incredible how often multiple times a game he he'll be backpedaling right into a receiver's route. Like it's <laughs> like how do you how how do you just know exactly where this guy is without even turning your head around while keeping your eyes on the quarterback? So yeah, Levante David, absolute stud still. Yeah, I mean you don't survive for a decade, not just survive but thrive uh, like that guy has without some exceptional recognition and clairvoyance. A great word for him. So. Secondary is what we'll close with defensively. I mean, it's all a bunch of guys they drafted over the course of three years, right? Second, third round guys, Jamel Dean, Mike Edwards, Antoine Winfield, Carlton Davis, Sean Murphy, Bunting. Talk talk about that group. You said they're playing a bit more nickel. So who finds himself in the slot? You fill that out for us and talk about what they like to do coverage-wise. Are they an odd? Uh, you know, do they like to play even stuff? What are they in the middle of the field open? Just give us like some some broad scouting stuff. Sure, yeah, let's start there. So they're definitely shifting him to more of those even fronts. Uh, and when they are, but behind, behind those even fronts is still the classic Todd Bowles cover three on first downs. We're talking about pretty basic cover three. Usually it's going to be the safe, it's the strong safety down in the box playing in that curl flat area and, and spot dropping behind it. They don't care. They don't match. It's not any sort of match cover three. They don't even carry their seams. So at times they can get burned by that by four verticals type concepts where the free safety can only really cheat over to one side. You, you lock him that way with your eyes and you throw to the other seam. Uh, the Rams have taken advantage of that in both a couple of weeks ago with the touchdown to Cooper Cup. And then even in the divisional round, exact same concept they used against the exact same coverage. And that's one of the weaknesses. But fundamentally, Bowles wants to kind of play somewhat vanilla on first down because he's trying to do everything he can I mean, even though I mentioned that one seam weakness, he's really trying to not get gashed on first down in an effort to get you into third down at all costs because that's when he really does his bowls type stuff where he's just showing you all these funky looks where you watch the tape and you're like, I have no idea how in the world you're supposed to set your pass protection against this, who's coming, who's not. All these guys walk down the line, overloaded fronts, you know, everybody over to one side, creating an isolated look on the other side of the line. And it's those third down looks, there's a ton of week to week variation. Overall, definitely still a middle of the field closed uh, team as a whole, though they also they're playing around a little bit more on later downs with starting in two high looks and spinning down against Seattle. They actually played a lot of three buzz, which is not their typical preferred type of cover three. But they'll also in obvious pass situations mix in a lot more match quarters, it feels like this year. You know, your, your bracket type stuff you know, against trips, you're talking about stubby, stump, that sort of thing. Uh, and, and so that's been kind of something that they've leaned on more. And as far as the secondary player-wise, Carlton Davis has been, over the last few years, one of my absolute favorite players on this team. I always felt like he didn't get talked about enough. He is a very, very solid cornerback. And in those three-by-one formations, they always felt so comfortable just saying, hey, you're going to be on the backside against that X receiver. You're one-on-one. If we're playing single high, then, yeah, you're just completely one-on-one. But if we're playing too high, we might actually even just have our weak side safety just play to the passing strength so we can go five over three. And, again, you're just going to be on your own. And he absolutely can deliver in those situations. This year, the really nice surprise has been the big step up that Jamel Dean has taken. He's, he's always been good, but now, to me, he's, he's an equal to Carlton Davis. And uh, last game, it was so surprising to me when we saw those 3 by one formations uh, with, against Seattle where they would isolate Metcalf. 
And suddenly it was, oh, that's Jamel Dean on the backside locked up against Metcalf, not Carlton Davis. And that is not something you you don't see Carlton Davis lose that role. Like, I can't remember the last time I saw that, honestly. So, And it's not because Carlton Davis is playing poorly. It's just because Jamel Dean has actually stepped up in a huge way. And in the final piece, which you already touched on in terms of who's coming down to that nickel position, this was a huge surprise to me coming into this season when they, when they said that they would do this during the offseason. It's been Antoine Winfield Jr. He's been an absolute stud in that free safety position, in those middle-of-the-field close coverages, having to cover so much space side-to-side. He's been so smart at reading coverage or reading concepts and getting himself into the right spot at the right time. So to take him away from that, to me, was a big head-scratcher. But it paid off in a big way because fundamentally what Bowles is saying is, screw positions, I just want to make sure my best players are out there. So that means at the beginning of the season, keeping Logan Ryan out there. And now it's been uh, with Logan Ryan injured, it's been Keanu Neal. And it's, it's moving Winfield into that nickel corner position. He's not necessarily a great nickel coverage player, especially in man-to-man situations, but he is still an extremely smart player. He's, and they've actually, when they really get into some of those funky coverages, they use him as a pass rusher at times, and he's the highest graded pass rusher, uh, safe pass rushing safety by PFF this year. He's been unbelievable in those situations. And really, no matter where you put him, he's capable of being an absolute game wrecker. And, and yeah, I think they've really they've really found something here schematically with some of the tweaks they've been making. This secondary at times they've gotten a little more flat than they deserved over the last few years, but so much of that has come from the fact that they were blitzing so much that they only had six guys in coverage making forcing them to play a little softer, give up completions more easily, which, you know, to the average viewer on TV, TV it looks like oh, they're just giving up completions all the time. This year when they're getting a little more help they have they've taken a noticeable step forward in in their uh, overall production. So they like in this one, Cleveland obviously run heavy approach, trying to get back on track. Buffalo, a ton of single high, eight man boxes. Do you expect them to do a lot of the same? Because you know I think the Browns are trying to figure out how to run the football well. They've been more gapped in wide zone lately. They're a block away on a lot of these. They're not far off. So. Would you expect a lot of single high in this one, or do you think they want to invite Cleveland to try to throw it a little bit because they think they can handle that? Because, I, I mean, I, I it's an interesting approach. Jacoby's playing pretty good football. It's a week before Deshaun Watson returns, but Jacoby's playing pretty well. So I'm curious if they you think they need to commit extra box resources to stop the run, or do you think they're able to to play some too high here and there and get away with it? I definitely wouldn't expect them to play a ton of too high on early downs. Uh, on early downs, excuse me. Um, what's been interesting is, like I mentioned, even though they're matching more personnel and, and they're willing to play lighter personnel on first down, it's still been a ton of of single high with that safety down in the box. And the crazy thing is, last year, in those neutral first downs, and when I say neutral, that just means I'm throwing out the last two minutes of each half and we're only looking at situations where the, where the score relative to the time remaining is fairly close. So we're trying to take away blowout situations where one team is playing totally differently. On those neutral first downs, last year the Bucs were the fourth best run defense in the league. This year, still the fourth best run defense in the league, even with those lighter bodies. So I still expect them to I, I expect them to just play a little bit lighter if the if the Browns play a ton of eleven personnel or something like that. But if they do come out in more heavy sets, twelve personnel, that sort of thing, that's when you're gonna see definitely the the Bucks revert back to kind of what they've been doing the last few years. Five guys on the line, base personnel. 
definitely single high, doing everything they can to take away the run. And and uh, if if Cleveland's able to get anything going in the play action game, that will that'll be a big boost for them. And I I do definitely think that interior interior runs are the way to go. When you try to get side to side against this team, that's when Devin White is able to just show off that speed so well. He's when mm-hmm. he can just sprint and get to, get to a a spot. That's when he's excellent. But where you can take advantage of him at times is some of those backside runs uh, because he can over-pursue at times to the play side. So if you're able to cut it back, whether it be on counter or something like that, or even on a gap run where you're just cutting it back, I mean, typically that's something you're going to see more on zone runs. If you're able to get create some of those opportunities, that's where you can really take advantage of the bucks between the tackles. I don't have the numbers to back me up on this. I haven't checked this out. But at least just from my eye test, the outside stuff is where you don't want to test them as much. Yeah, certainly you're, you're talking about linebacker stuff there, uh, you know, where the Browns have struggled with 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 maybe one guy being a, a, a troublemaker. It has been speed closing, click and close linebackers. Matt Milano uh, gave them fits last week, uh, the week before that, Jerome Baker uh, down in Miami, and then the week before that, before uh, the bye, you know, they're playing the, the um, Ravens and Patrick Queen. So it's a similar mold, I think. If I look at what their run game issues are the past two weeks, it has certainly been handling second-level players aggressively getting downhill ahead of either a a deuce block or whatever, peeling to them and just taking the run to the other side of the line of scrimmage, if that makes sense. So I think Cleveland will try to put together a better interior run game package, including some of that power counter stuff they love, might try to sprinkle in some pin pull, but I don't see it being a very high high, um, output of a, wide zone uh, type of structure for them that they typically like to do. So we'll be paying close attention to that chess game as well. Good stuff from Paul there. Close with specials real quick, just who the kicker is, punter is, and how they're playing this year, the returners, anything of note there. Sure. Uh, the punter, rookie Jake Camarda, he had a great first game of the season against Dallas. You're just showing off that big leg. Then he was kind of, I would say, down for, for several weeks. I you know, honestly, I'm not I'm not sick enough to be watching special teams tape all the time. So this is just from the TV copy. But <laughs> he definitely had a great game against Seattle, and I think he, against the Rams as well. Just absolutely stellar. Just again, able to just create so much distance on those punts and just pin teams back. Really flip field position. The kicker, veteran Ryan Suckup, reliable as ever. He's uh, he's just just consistent. Really, not much more to say beyond that. You can count on him as long as you're in any sort of reasonable distance. The return man, for the most part, has been Jalen Darden. He's uh, he's in his second year, really not anything to write home about. He just feels like he slips on every other return. So overall, I would say that this special teams unit, uh, especially the return unit in previous years, has just been outright bad. And it went so far as to, I, I believe, if I remember the stats correctly, last year nobody was forced to return more kickoffs than the Bucks. Like teams were never just kicking it out of the end zone against the Bucks. They wanted to make them return it. Uh, I think they're a little better this year. Again, just from the eye test, haven't looked up the stats. Same within the punt return game, but it's certainly not an area where they create an advantage. They're just okay in the return game. A lot of similar sentiments from Cleveland as well, where at times the, the specials have been a net negative. Uh, in a lot of phases, they're 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 more just okay than anything else. So, uh, hopefully, we won't see either of these teams slip up and cost themselves something important uh, in this game on special. So, hopefully, a listen at the end of the day, 
I just would like to see a good football game. Sounds like Tampa's on the rise coming off a of bye week. Cleveland's going to be playing desperate football, at least we hope, a desperate form of football in front of their fans uh, with, with a lot on the horizon looming for them. So should be a great game. Paul, this has been as in-depth as I could have asked for, plus some, man. You can find Paul at Atwal NFL, A-T-W-A-L-N-F-L on Twitter. And then obviously you can find his film analysis over at Pewter Report, who does uh, dynamic stuff covering uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers football out there, the best you can find. So, Paul, we really, really appreciate your time and insight, man. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jake. Okay, so that's a wrap for today. Again, uh, I informed you earlier to check out some recent episodes. I put a run game struggle article up at the OBR. That's available. We have our analytics preview for the game. Always readily available, the roundtable, all that fun stuff. So check that out. Hopefully, if you're listening to this on Saturday, Ohio State is taking care of business against Michigan. If not, I'm sorry that maybe your feelings are a little bit hurt because that that would suck. So anyway, guys, hopefully you had a great Thanksgiving and a great weekend. Check in with Brad Ward and I on Sunday for our game day preview for your morning. Other than that, listen, have a great Saturday. And, uh, you know, take care of your family. Stay safe, be well, and go Browns. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.